It's always our privilege to be together to worship God through the study of His Word. I don't think there's anything more important, nothing brings more honor and praise to Him than when we sit at His feet and study together. And so it's our joy to just come before the Lord and study His Word. That's what we have the grand opportunity to do on our own. We have the Word of God, our own self, individually, and that's what we come together to do corporately as a church, and it's always good when we we do that together. I'm really reminded of the church that began in Acts chapter 2 and why they came together. Why did they gather together? And Acts chapter 2 verse 42 says they came together and were devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and prayer. And so right there in the beginning, the, the embryonic stage, if you will, of the church, the first and foremost reason for coming together is to hear the Word of God. To be together, to hear, be under the teaching of the Word of God so that we might be equipped to honor Christ in all of our lives in obedience regardless of what's happening with the wicked. Regardless of what even God allows through our obedience or doesn't allow. That is why I love for us to come together. Why I believe that when we gather together We need to just hear from the Word of God. It equips us. Nothing else equips us. We can spend a lot of time together as people, and that's wonderful, just chatting about life, but the one thing that equips us is the Word of God. So since you have your Bibles and you're ready to be equipped, open to John chapter 12. John chapter 12, because we are considering and continuing to consider our study Concerning the character of true worshipers. The character of true worshipers. John said, I wrote this that you might believe, and through your believing you might have life in his name, Jesus Christ, that we might have life. That's what a true worshiper is, someone who's saved. So what is the character of true worshipers? You remember that Lazarus has just recently been raised from the dead, at least in our study in John chapter 11. That was the last definitive miracle that Jesus Christ would do in and amongst the public people. And although many had seen it take place, there were many who were there when Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth, a relatively small amount of people actually truly believed in Christ. And of course, the event itself had significant impact upon Lazarus, obviously, and his immediate family. Mary and Martha had been clearly and immeasurably changed through their encounter with Jesus Christ. But really, of the rest of the people that were there that day, all we truly know is that some of them were indeed bearing witness of Christ, but the majority were merely curious about him, curious about the phenomenon that took place. To most, Christ was just that, just a circus sideshow, if you will. He was someone who did uh, good things, but possibly it was just something for a moment, something out of the ordinary, but not really truly one who needed to be followed. Even the Gentiles were curious as to who Jesus was and Last time we were together here in the Gospel of John, we saw that with the Greeks coming to him in verse 20, wanting to see him, wanting to to know who Christ was. And part of the outworking of that was a, 
uh, for true worshipers, as we un- uncovered in that passage, part of the reality for true worshipers was that they would have a willingness to die to self. True worshipers have a willingness to die to self, or you must die to self if you're ever going to come to Christ at all. In other words, there is a supremacy in death. What was true of Christ in the physical realm by dying actually for you and I must also be true to all of those who follow Christ in the spiritual realm. We have to have a willingness to die to self. Unless one dies to self, they cannot be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Dying to self becomes then the life principle of all the disciples of Christ. A willingness to die to self. In fact, in Luke chapter 14, it says, unless you hate your mother and father and sister and brother and mother-in-law and in-law, whatever it is, you cannot be my disciple. The idea there is, unless you love everything else a whole lot less than you love me, the outworking of your life in showing that, the reality of that, you can't be a disciple of mine. So this dying of self idea, this principle that Jesus is explaining to the curious, these Greek proselytes from Asia Minor, unless you come to me totally bankrupt in spirit and unless you die in your place, there's no life. There's no life. Because, as Jesus clearly says, it is to this hour that I came. And I want to begin by reading just from those very words, beginning in verse 27 tonight, and read down through verse 36, and then unpack these for us as we think about this reality of true worshipers. Jesus goes on to say, John tells us, Jesus says, Now my soul has become troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And there came, therefore, a voice out of heaven. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. And the multitude, therefore, who stood by and heard it were saying that it had thundered. Others were saying, an angel has spoken to him. And Jesus answered and said, this voice has not come for my sake, but for your sake. Now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world shall be cast out, and I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. But he was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he was to die. The multitude therefore answered him, We have heard out of the law that the Christ is to remain forever. How can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Therefore said to them, For a little while longer the light is among you. Walk while you have the light, that darkness may not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. While you have the light, believe in the light, in order that you may become sons of light. I was... Intrigued recently as I was reminded of one of the many books that I have on my shelf in my office. It's a book that I've read in the past. It's entitled On a Hill Too Far Away. And in that book, the author, John Fisher, tells of a church in Greenwich, old Greenwich, Connecticut, where 
from the outside, the church would appear to be like any other old New England church. But on the inside, it was not like any church around. And it wasn't that the church had some kind of unusual decor in which you could say that's not like every other church. There wasn't some kind of bizarre configuration of the pews in which was so different that everybody would say this is a whole different place. What was intriguing about this church was the placement of the cross, where the cross was. Because unlike most churches, even like our church here today, where the cross is hung on the wall behind me, usually that's where the cross sits in most churches, usually behind the pulpit in some prominent place where all the people can look at it. But in this church, it was not like that. The church's... This church's cross was bolted to the floor in front of the platform, not more than three feet away from the pulpit. Now, that doesn't sound so strange to us that we might have a cross bolted to the floor right here in front of the stage. But what is strange is when you find out that the cross that they had bolted to the floor was ten feet tall. Ten feet tall. And where the cross is located seemingly defies all logic. If you're going to have a ten-foot-high cross, why would you put it right in front of the pulpit bolted to the floor? In fact, it is illogical, and it is an obstruction to everybody who enters and sits in the pews and to the person who is actually giving the message. It's in the way. The author of the book said this, quote, The preacher's words have to pass through it. The congregation's eyes always have to have it somewhere in view, so that even when they look away, it's still there, impressed on the back wall of the retina, unquote. By the way, according to the author, it's not a very pretty cross. It's not sleek and beautiful sanded very smoothly with a nice high-gloss finish on it with lights behind it. No, it's made out of untreated raw wood. The writer of the book said that when you see it, quote, you can only think of splinters, something hard, something immovable. Now, why would anyone, let alone a church, place such a huge piece of Wood, a monstrosity in a place of prominence. Because where it stood made it without fail something that everybody had to deal with. And it didn't matter where you sat, it didn't matter where you were, you had to deal with the cross. You had to look around it, you had to look under it, you had to look somewhere dealing with the cross. It didn't matter where you were. It didn't matter who was speaking from the pulpit or how great the message was that was coming out from the pulpit and how well the words were placed in sentences. Even the preacher himself had to deal with the cross. So it is with all who wish to come to worship Christ. We have to deal with the cross. We cannot get around it. We cannot escape the pain that it represents cannot remove its image. We cannot get it out of our mind and hope that we might be in the presence of God, but just get the cross out of the way. 
Why is that so? Well, John tells us why in these verses. As, again, we hear John continuing to give us the answer of Jesus Christ to this curious crowd who's following him, really, based upon the reality that he brought Lazarus from the dead and now has returned to Jerusalem for the Passover. And I just want to uncover for us or show us at least six reasons why all people have to deal with the cross if they are to be true worshipers of Jesus Christ. The first reason is this. First reason it is, why do all true worshipers, why must they deal with the cross? The first is this, because it's the will of God. It's the will of God. Notice verse 27, now my soul has become troubled, Jesus said, and what shall I say, Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose I came to this hour. Jesus is really introducing to the crowd a hypothetical prayer. Hypothetically, crowd, should I just say to God, say to my Father, oh, remove me from this hour? In other words, he is indicating to them that there is no other way for true worshipers to come to God. Jesus had to come to that hour. I cannot simply ask that question. That is a ridiculous question. I cannot say, save me from this hour. This is the purpose that I came. You notice that the cross and death are difficult even for Jesus in His humanity. Even in the humanity of Christ, it is troubling to His very soul. The word troubling here, when it says, my soul became troubled, it means stirred up. I'm stirred up, just like back in John chapter 11 with the people mourning and weeping over Lazarus. It's used in John 5 for the stirring of the waters at the pools of Bethsaida when Jesus came into Jerusalem and the man was trying to crawl his way to the waters because they believed that when the waters were stirred, it was an angel who stirred them and whoever got into the water first would be healed. Christ was stirred up in His humanity to the as to the prospect of death, even though he knew that it was to this very hour that he had come. This is my purpose. Christ has said, I've come to seek and to save sinners. That's why I came. In other words, I came to buy back those who are dead through death. They are actually dead spiritually through spiritual death. That's simply another way of saying there's no other way it can happen. I have to do this in order to buy back the very ones I came to save. There's no other way to go about it. All of us must, if we are to be true worshipers of God, if you are actually a worshiper of God, you had to deal with the cross. You have to deal with Christ's death. You cannot just say, I believe in God. You cannot just say, I believe there is a God. You have to deal with Jesus Christ. It is to this very hour that He came. You have to deal with the death of cross, death of Christ. It's the will of God. It is the will of God that through the cross He would justify sinful man in Christ. And even though Jesus prayed in the garden, 
that it might be done another way. Lord, if there's some other way, take this cup from me. He concludes with that prayer. He says, yet not as I will, but as you will. It's the same thing Jesus is saying here. Should I ask the Father, save me from this hour? It's for this purpose that I came. Even though Jesus was troubled in his spirit, in spite of all of the horrors, in spite of all that might come through death, Christ was determined, praise God, Christ was determined because He is God to embrace the fulfillment of the plan of the Father for our salvation. If we are to be true worshipers of God, we must deal with the cross. It is the will of God. So that's the first simple simple reason that we all must deal with the cross. It's because it has been and is still God's design for salvation. It is God's design for salvation. It is for this purpose that Jesus came to this hour. There's a second reason that we have here in this. And that is this. Because it is through the cross that God is glorified. It is through the cross that God is glorified. Notice notice what John tells us here in verse 28 to 30. Father, glorify your name. And there came therefore a voice out of heaven. I have both glorified it and I will glorify it again. And of course the multitude therefore who is standing there hears this and they're thinking they're hearing thunder. Others are saying, oh, it must be an angel speaking to him. And Jesus says this voice has not come for my sake but for your sakes. Father, glorify your son. I'm doing that. And the people are wondering what's going on. So in spite of the immense pain that was to come to Christ, it was through the cross that God would, in fact, be glorified. I find it rather incredible that this is resolved in the midst of immense potential pain. But it is not a resolve to go through the pain primarily so that you and I would be saved. This is the amazing thing about it. This is immense determination to go through with the reality of impending pain, resolve to do it, and yet it's not a resolve so that you and I would be saved. That is not the chief reason for which Christ went to the cross. The chief reason why Christ went to the cross, although it is a symbol of pain and suffering, the chief reason why Christ went to the cross was more a symbol of glory for God. This is Christ's prayer. Father, glorify Your name. That is the reason that I came. Should I say to the Father in verse 27, save me from this hour? It is for this purpose that I came. What hour is that? The hour by which and through which you would be glorified. There's no way I'm going to ask the Father to remove this hour from me. That's why I came, that He might indeed be glorified. God's name had already been glorified in Christ. God says it. I have both glorified it and I will glorify it again. It was glorified at His birth. 
the heavenly realms sang, sang glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace among men whom, with whom He is well pleased. It was glory to God when Jesus came and became man, born of a virgin, that glorified God. God was being praised through the greatest of all mysteries. God becoming man. The God of very gods condescending and becoming man and takes up the cause and the penalty of sinful men so that sinful men might become like Him. So that we may be able to do what we were created to do. What? Glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And all of it through the cross. All of it through the cross. Jesus says, He didn't say this for me. He said it for you. True worshipers must deal with the cross. Why? Because it's God-ordained. It is God's will. True worshipers must deal with the cross because the cross brings glory to God. Number three, the third reason why all true worshipers must deal with the cross is this, is because the cross represents judgment. The cross represents judgment. Notice verse 31. Now judgment is upon this world. You can stop right there. Now judgment is upon this world. This is why the cross is truly unattractive. It speaks of judgment. I think this is why, at least throughout the ages of humanity, man has tried to beautify the cross. This is why we try to make it as pretty as we can. Because judgment is offensive. Judgment causes us to cringe. We don't like judgment. I mean, you, you say, well, no, that's not really true in my life, really. Do you, are there times when you should chastise your children and you don't? Why don't you? And you certainly don't want somebody to say, well, it's because you're being disobedient as a parent because the parent's life is to, to bring those kinds of things into the child's life. No, there's often times you don't do it because you just don't like judgment. It causes you to cringe. In our home, when our kids were younger, the symbol of judgment was that instrument. We, we actually called it the rod. It wasn't a rod itself, but we called it that. It was the instrument we used to bring judgment upon them for wrongs committed. And one of the worst things that we could do, or one of the most challenging things that we did with our kids was for them to bring the instrument of judgment to us when it was time for judgment upon them. It was difficult for them to have to deal with the instrument of judgment. It's the same with the cross. It's the same with the cross. It's through the cross that judgment came upon the sin of the world. We don't like to deal with that. We, we want to beautify the cross. We want to put it aside. We want to set it in the corner. We don't really want to look at it because it, it reminds
reminds us of that reality. It reminds us that there's a consequence to sin. It reminds us that there's judgment upon something. And, and since Christ didn't deserve the judgment, we don't want to think about judgment because that means the judgment was somebody else's to pay. It was the cross and on the cross that the punishment for sin was paid. It was on the cross that the, the full wrath of the Father was meted out against the sin of, of all who would ever believe and poured out upon the Son. Every time we look at the cross, we have to deal with the judgment. We have to deal with the penalty of sin. That's why Jesus says here now, judgment is upon this world. Because the cross was just now a few days away. It's upon the cross and upon it only that the penalty is paid. We, what we had coming to us because of our sin was placed upon the one who hung on that cross. Would it change the way we thought about our life if we had a 10-foot cross standing right here in front of us and we had to deal with that every day? Would it, in fact, when you lay at night and you, you're about to, to, to pass off into sleep as your eyes are closed, would not that cross be burnt in the retina of your eye as you thought about what took place on that cross? Jesus says, now judgment is upon this world, but, but on that cross it did not end there. Because as much as the cross represents judgment, it also, praise God, represents victory. You notice what it says, now judgment is upon this world, now the ruler of this world, verse 31, shall be cast. While the world was judging itself through killing Christ, the cross also delivered the death blow that ended the reign of the prince of the power of the air. To those who were there that day on Calvary, to those who would be there, at least in our study, in the following days on Calvary, watching as Christ hung on the cross, to those who were there and to the fallen spiritual world who, who rejected Christ before man was ever created in the fall of Satan himself, Calvary may have seemed like a victory for them. But it was instead the source of the world's greatest victory. Satan himself was thrown out. He was once and for all defeated. Death, where is your victory? One man put it this way. He said, in the past, Christ's fate was determined, and on the cross, his fate was sealed. Talking about Satan, actually. In the past, his fate was determined, and on the cross, his fate was sealed. prophecy of Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 was accomplished. The serpent's head was crushed. So all people then have to deal with the cross. 
All true worshipers have to deal with the cross, for it is there that we see God's will carried out. It is the hour for which Christ came. It is there that we see God's glory on display. It's there that the judgment upon the sin that needed to be dealt with is meted out and the execution of judgment upon the satanic realm and the sin of the world is all meted out and the ruler of this world is cast out. And then fourth, fourth, we have to deal with the cross because it is there that we see Christ. It is there that we see Christ. Verse 32 says, and, if, and I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. But he was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he was to die. At the cross, we must deal with Christ. At the cross, if it doesn't cause us to think of Christ, then we need to rethink the cross. Already in our study back in chapter 3 in verse 14, Jesus has already revealed, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. We remember, we're reminded, our mind is taken back all the way back to the incident of the Israelites in the desert and how they had rebelled against God and how God had sent fiery serpents into the midst of them as a judgment upon them and these poisonous snakes were biting the people and people were dying from from being bitten by these poisonous snakes and the people are are wondering what they were going to do and Moses goes and God says, put a, a serpent on a pole and raise it up. And as ridiculous as it may have sounded, if you, if you look at the, the serpent on the pole, you'll be healed. Anyone who looks at the serpent on the pole, they'll be healed. Put your trust in what I have said that you might be healed. In other words, believe what God said. The pole did nothing to heal the person. It was a trust in what God said to do that brought that about by God's gracious hand. And that is exactly what Christ is saying in verse 32. I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. I, if I be lifted up. That's the emphatic way of Jesus Christ saying, I only. Only me. No one else. This can't come through anybody else. This is Jesus emphasis upon the reality of the way in which he would die, which is why you have John telling us that in verse 33. In other words, this is the work of Christ and Christ alone. No one else. No one else could fulfill this reality. You look through the Gospels, this whole whole terminology lifted up refers to the cross. It refers to the cross and the effect of the cross and the death of Christ is that Christ will draw all men to himself. That's what he's saying in verse 32. If I'm lifted up, if I go to the cross, all men are going to be drawn to me. Let's not get confused here because he is not saying every man, the idea of some kind of universalism, the idea of some kind of saving of all people no matter what. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying that all men 
without exception will be drawn to him. No. But what he is saying is that all kinds of men he will bring to himself. In other words, not just Jews, but Gentiles as well. Not just those whom are the ones of the heritage of the Jewish nation, but also the grafted in ones of the Gentiles. And all who come will have come. Why? Because he has drawn them. Not because they decided to come on their own. John 6.44, he clearly said, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So the cross forces all of us to deal with God's will. It is for this purpose that Christ came. The cross forces us to deal with the glory of God. It is to glorify the name of God. It isn't simply to save us. It is to glorify God's name. Certainly God is glorified by saving those whom he has chosen to save. But Christ died for God. That God would be glorified. So we have to deal with God's will. We have to deal with God's glory. It forces us to deal with sin and judgment. The reality of the wickedness that must uh, be done away with forces us to deal with Jesus Christ because it's only through Him that man can be saved. Fifth, fifth, true worshipers have to deal with the cross because it forces us to deal with our understanding of God forces us to deal with our understanding of God. Notice verse 34. It says, The multitude therefore answered, We have heard out of the law that the Christ is to remain forever. And how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Who is this Son of Man? The people are sure they have it right. The people are sure that what they know from the Old Testament law, what they know from the Scriptures, what they've heard taught, that the, they, they, they are sure they know that the law taught certain things about the Messiah and, and the characteristic of the Messiah. But what they kept hearing from Jesus was something different. The Old Testament said, Daniel 7, verse 14, His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. His kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12 and following, God told David that after he died that he would raise up an offspring to succeed him and that the throne, his throne, his kingdom would last forever. The prophet Isaiah said virtually the same thing in chapter 9, verse 7. And so their understanding is being challenged. Their understanding of what the what the law was and, and what the prophet said and their interpretation of that and, and their idea of understanding that. They think they know what is right. But Christ is saying something different. So, if the Son of Man is the Messiah, how is it that He must die? How is it that He, he is to die when they thought that He would in fact live forever? seems rather contradictory to them, confusing. This idea that death comes, through death comes life. Isn't that what it's like for many today? 
the same kind of reality to say that we must believe upon Jesus for salvation? Just believe upon Jesus. Just place your faith in Jesus, his righteousness. For the Jew to say that our king and our Messiah must die so that we can have victory seems ridiculous. For many today to say that I could have actually a relationship in the glories of heaven with God and Jesus Christ if I just would believe upon Jesus seems rather ridiculous. Who is this son of man? The question, what they're saying, who is this son of man? And as much as it is confusion, in their confusion is a refusal to believe. That's the idea. We've heard that the law says that Christ is to remain forever. How can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? We're not going to believe that. Who is the Son of Man? It's like what Pilate said, what is truth? They're saying similar words, just in a different way. Who is the Son of Man? Implying sarcastically, is he God? That's really what they're saying. It's like sin. What is true? Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. They're saying, who is the Son of Man? Is he God? I mean, come on. This is why the cross is a stumbling block for some. Because in order to come to God, you must come through Christ, who is indeed God. And so it always challenges our human understanding that we can be saved through the foolishness of the cross. It challenges our definition of who God is. Maybe people say, I believe in God, but they reject Jesus Christ. And we saw this morning, you cannot have it both ways. If you say you have a relationship with God, yet you reject Jesus Christ like Jesus said, then you don't love me, therefore you don't know God. You can't have it both ways. If you're a true worshiper of of God, then you're a true worshiper of Jesus Christ, which means you have to deal with the cross, which means you have to understand that Jesus Christ is God. Number six. Number six. Last, all true worshipers must deal with the cross because it's the only means of salvation. The one who hung there is the one who saves. Notice verse 35 and 36. Jesus therefore said to them, For a little while longer the light is among you. Walk while you have the light, that darkness may not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. While you have the light, believe in the light, in order that you may become sons of light. Interesting, these are the last words that Jesus will speak in public. Just these few words right here. After this, you see nothing of Jesus. Speaking publicly, at least. He will speak again in private with his disciples, but these are the last words he speaks in public. And I like it because he ends with the gospel. He ends with the gospel. The very last thing he says to somebody is the gospel. Notice he doesn't answer them directly. They say, who is this son of man? He doesn't answer that question directly. Instead, he deals with the gospel. He deals with the means of salvation. They want to discuss the expectations of the Messiah. 
you talk to some people today, they want to discuss prophecy or they want to discuss some felt needs that, that they want to have fulfilled. But Jesus wants to talk about a relationship. That's what he wants to talk about. He doesn't want to talk about those other issues. He just simply wants to talk about having a relationship with him. The day of darkness is coming. So get the light while there is opportunity. That's the, the essence of what he's saying. In the words of the writer of Hebrews, today is the day of salvation. Do not harden your hearts. That's how he says it. Get saved now. This is the plea of Jesus Christ. These are the final words of Jesus Christ to the public. Get saved now. There is coming a time when there will be no more chances. There is coming a time when the offer of light is gone. There is coming a time when you won't have that option. While the light is here, believe in the light who is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ said, John chapter 7, I am the light of the world. Believe in the light. There's coming a time when you won't have that option anymore. While you have the light, believe in the light. It's through faith in Christ. It's through Faith, as we learned this morning in Christ alone, that man can become a child of the light. Believe in the light that you might become sons of light. People must put their trust in Jesus Christ. There's no other way. It's by faith that one passes decisively out of darkness and into life. We have been transformed from the domain of darkness into the domain of His dear Son, Colossians 2. Christ is the light. And the cross causes all of us to deal with Christ. You can't get around it. So these then are the final public words of Christ. You must deal with the cross And that means you must deal with Christ. Because the cross is God's ordained way of salvation. Paying for our sin. The cross is a means for God's glory. The cross is a symbol of divine judgment and divine victory over sin. The cross forces us to deal with Christ as God. It challenges our understanding to that reality of who God is. The cross is the only road to salvation. Just as in that old church in Old Greenwich, Connecticut, Every true worshiper must deal with the cross. I love what it says right here at the end of verse 36. These things Jesus spoke. And he departed and hid himself from them. I wonder if they were thinking that the light would be gone that quickly. Though he had performed so many signs before him, they were 
not believing in him. Father, your cross is such a an offense to our very humanity. We want to clean it up. We want to make it pretty. We want to beautify it. Beautify what took place in Calvary. And oftentimes we ought to just leave it in its sheer grotesque nature. So that we could actually deal with the reality of what it took. any wonder that in our day and age Hollywood tries to portray it and we get shocked at the graphicness. And the reality is the graphic nature of Hollywood pales in comparison to the reality of the graphic nature of what took place that day. And that cross is a symbol of it. Is it any wonder that you say, if you're going to be my disciple, you must take up your cross daily and follow me. The instrument and symbol of reality of dying to self, the reality of dealing with the cross, we all must deal with the cross. Father, thank you for opening our eyes to that reality once again. Thank you, even at this moment, so close to, to the season of Easter. And by your providence, here we are. Thank you for showing us these things that in just a few short days you would die and just a few short hours after that you would rise again. Lord, without life in you, there is no life. You are the light of the world. I trust that we believe in the light that we might be and are sons of light. We thank you for these things. Use them in our life to share with others that you might be glorified, that others might come to know Christ as their Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.